Well, those testimonies were a blessing, weren't they? I think we could just give an invitation right now. Um, clear presentations of the gospel and of who we are in Jesus Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles with me and open to the book of Matthew. We are going to, we're going to move quickly this morning uh, as we look at Matthew uh, and the section that Pastor Ben read for us this morning. I trust you were already convicted uh, just in reading through the passage. When I read through that passage, I, I feel convicted just, just reading it. And, and this morning we want to look, uh, you'll remember if you were here with us a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the beginning part of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about the different values of the kingdom that Jesus uh, lays out and that we said should be in our hearts as followers of Jesus Christ. And so in the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he talks about those who mourn and that produces the external manifestation of that is a meekness. Uh, those who crave righteousness, which is also manifested by showing mercy to others. Those who are pure in heart, which is manifested by peacemaking. And then, of course, Jesus said, blessed are you when men will revile and persecute and slander you on account of my name. And we mentioned how that when we live these ways with these kingdom values in our lives, in our world, there, there will likely be reviling and persecution and slander because these values that are characteristic of the kingdom of God are not values that are popular or that are shared in our culture. And so as Jesus continues, he he highlights a very important thing, and, and this is what I want us to remember this morning, kind of as, a, as an overarching statement, that if God's kingdom values are in our hearts, we will not be content with merely being religious, but we will seek to know God's heart and to flesh it out in our dealings with others. I think we could say this is kind of the summary statement of this whole long passage that Pastor Ben read for us in Matthew 5 from verse 17 down to verse 48. Now today, as we look at this passage, like we did in the first 16 verses, we are going to take a big picture approach. We're not going to dive into every little detail. You know, you've heard the illustration of missing the forest for the trees. We're not going to analyze each individual tree and each individual branch. We're not going to be able to go through and dig into every detail and examine in, in some of the minutiae of each verse. But we want to take a big picture approach to see what Jesus is saying to us as his disciples about these kingdom values. And what is the difference in being merely religious and actually understanding God's heart and fleshing it out in our lives. So as Jesus begins or continues his discourse, he says these words, and I don't want us to miss the significance of this because these verses from verse 17 down to verse 20 are really going to shape everything that Jesus says after this. And so he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, if we were reading through the Gospels chronologically, we would understand a little bit why Jesus was saying this. 
Because as Jesus was going and he was beginning his ministry, he was healing, he had already run into some conflicts with the religious leaders, specifically over the fact when he had healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. He was in the synagogues, he healed this man, and he stoked the outrage of the religious leaders because Jesus dared to violate the law of Moses, as they saw it, by healing a man on the Sabbath. So Jesus had already begun to come under scrutiny in his ministry that this was a man, and we can read later on in John, the Pharisees will say very clearly, this man does not come from God because he does not respect the Sabbath. So Jesus wants to clarify here his relationship to the law, to the established revelation of God. And he says, I did not come to abolish this law, to set it aside, but I came to fulfill them. And then he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, he said, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus meaning as he says these things? We have to understand there is a little bit of a difference uh, between the written law, the law of Moses that was given to Moses by God, written on tablets of stone, and the oral law. See, in, the day, in Jesus' day, the majority of people in the society were not like us. They would not be able to read and write. And, and laws and commandments were passed down and from generation to generation by oral teaching, by oral tradition. And this is why when we go all the way back to Deuteronomy, God tells the people of Israel that you will teach these laws to your children and you will talk about them when you rise up, when you're walking along the way, when you lie down. Because it, they didn't have a, a physical written text that they could refer to as we have the Bible in our hands today. And many of them, even if they had that in their possession, if they were not able to read and understand it, so, so the weight of these laws was passed on orally from generation to generation. And as these laws were passed on, it was not just a rote memory type of a thing. What was passed on was not just the law as it was given, but also the interpretations of the law. And it became almost like an oral commentary series. And at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, there were two different, uh, there were two, uh, different camps, if you will, of Pharisees, camps of interpretation. One was more strict and rigid. One was a little more, if you want to use the term, liberal or loose. And there was, there was much debate as to which is the correct interpretation of the law. And this is why you will see Pharisees and Sadducees and others coming to Jesus and asking questions, hoping that he will validate their interpretation and therefore criticize the other. So when we, when we think about Jesus saying, I have not come to abolish the law, he is referring to the written law of Moses. 
But the Pharisees, in many of their systems of interpretation, what they did, and one commentator said this, they invented an entire system of loopholes, which gave them the appearance of godliness, but violated the spirit and the intent of the law. We're familiar with loopholes today, aren't we? We hear people talk about tax loopholes and legal loopholes and where people can get off on technicalities, though they may know in their heart that they have violated the spirit of a law. They find a little workaround and the Pharisees had become masters of this. They, they developed these systems of interpretation which would allow them to keep the letter of the law and therefore appear very religious, but yet missing the spirit of the law itself. There were some examples of this as we look through and we read through the Gospels. For example, if we go to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus will speak in this chapter very critically of the Pharisees, and he says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. In other words, these people, because they are following Moses, they have the authority, so you should listen to them when they speak. However, look at what he says. For they preach, but they do not practice. So observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do. They preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So through their interpretations, the Pharisees were laying the heavy burdens on some people, and yet they were creating loopholes for themselves by which they could escape the weightiness of the law. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. They were giving tithe all the way down to their spice gardens, counting out the leaves and the seeds, but Jesus says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone or without neglecting the others. Jesus was not saying you should not be doing these things. What he's saying is you are missing the bigger picture. You are missing God's heart behind these very laws. In Mark, we read, an even more pointed commentary of Jesus in regards to the Pharisees. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God to observe your own traditions. Now remember, when Jesus, we talked about the written law and the oral law. When Jesus speaks here of the commands of God, that is the written law. This is what God intended. But then when he says, observing your own traditions, these were the Pharisees' interpretations of the written law. And you will remember the Pharisees were constantly criticizing Jesus for not holding to the traditions, for not holding to their interpretations of the law. But Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. You're setting aside what God really wants just to keep your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And Anyone who curses his father or mother should be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. 
And thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So in the law, there is a clear commandment, honor your father and mother. And as we read through Scripture, part of the way we understand honoring father and mother was caring for them at times physically and taking the resources that one had to care for their parents. But according to the Pharisees, the way they had interpreted the law, the loophole that they had created was all a person had to do was to say, well, these resources are dedicated to God. So their korban is the word. They're they're set apart. They're dedicated to God. And therefore, I can't take and rob God in order to give it to you. So sorry, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to honor you in that way. And Jesus said, no, you're missing the whole point. So the Pharisees had this appearance of being very religious, of being very fastidious with the law, even to tithing and, and counting the leaves and the seeds from their spice gardens, but yet they missed the heart of it. And as we think about ourselves, it can be very easy to fall into the trap of religion, where we come on Sundays or on designated days, Wednesdays, and we do our religious things, But yet we must ask ourselves the question as Jesus is here, is our heart really committed to God? And so when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's a couple different ways we can understand this idea of fulfilling the law. First of all, Jesus did everything that was laid out in the law and the prophets. We know that Jesus, as he came and lived on this earth, he completely fulfilled the law. He perfectly obeyed everything that God required. And we know that to be true, but I think there's another interpretation of what Jesus is meaning when he says, I have come to fulfill the law. Other commentators will say that Jesus himself, he is the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament points to him. And he is the full realization of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so therefore, for us today, the law is no longer important just as Once you get to your destination, you no longer need the signs that helped you to get there. And while it is true that Jesus completely and fully obeyed the law, and while it is true that all of the Old Testament points to him, when we understand both the the sociocultural and historical context, and we look at the text, I think what we can see is that what Jesus is saying here when he says that I have come to fulfill the law, is that he is giving the full and the transcendent meaning of the law. You see, many of the Pharisees, when they would argue about which interpretation is correct, they would cite their favorite rabbi or some well-known teacher whose opinion 
accorded with theirs, thus giving weight to their argument. But Jesus, when he speaks, he does not do that. And as we go into the scriptures, we see that he says, you have heard that it was said, and he refers to an oral tradition, and he says, but I'm telling you. And when we get all the way to the end of Matthew, we read that the crowds were astonished because he spoke as one who had authority. And that was the point that Jesus is trying to make. When he comes and says, I am going to give you the full meaning of these laws, Jesus was elevating himself above all other interpreters and thus making his pronouncements equal with Scripture itself. So Jesus is getting to the heart of the laws. It's not just about religion. It's not just about observing a list of do's and don'ts. It's about having a heart that is truly committed to God. And this is why Jesus says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the Pharisees appeared to love God outwardly, but their heart wasn't committed to him. And what God is looking for is not outward conformity. He is looking for hearts that are committed to him. This led one commentator to say that despite their apparent commitment to scripture, religious people without transformed hearts will have no place in God's kingdom. And that is so important to us because as we talked about God's kingdom values, as we talked about having those be in our hearts, being religious is not enough. We have to have a heart that has been transformed by the Spirit of God. And so in order to illustrate now all of this, Jesus is going to take five case studies from the law and he's going to show how the oral tradition and the loopholes that were created missed the point of what God was really intending. And so we're going to look at these five just quickly and briefly. As I mentioned, we're not going to get into each and every one of the verses and the details. But Jesus introduces each one of these with the phrase, You have heard that it was said... And then he gives the oral tradition, and then he's going to give the fuller interpretation of this by saying, but I say to you. Let's look at these. The first one, starting in, in verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, Pastor Ben has already read this text. We're not going to take the time to reread this, but look at what Jesus does here in these verses, from verse 21 down to 26. He doesn't stop at just the outward action of murder, but he puts his finger on the heart, and he says the heart issue is not murder. The heart issue is anger and abusive language. And when you hate your brother, when you're angry with your brother, and when you insult your brother or sister because you have anger and abusive language in your heart, this is the same 
Jesus says. This is the heart issue behind the physical act of murder. So it's not enough to simply say, well, I've never murdered anyone. But are our hearts ruled with anger? Does abusive language come out of our mouths? Proverbs talks about words that speak like the piercings of a sword. If our words were physical weapons, how many of us would be classified as mass murderers? So Jesus boils down to the heart of the issue. And what he says, and as, as we look down, starting in verse 23, Jesus points out that the issue here with our anger and our abusive language, is that God, that is not conforming to God's heart. What God desires is reconciliation. See, in a world where there is sin and there is offense, we can never have true peace until Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes and sets up his kingdom. But in the meantime, rather than giving place to anger and abusive language when we are wrong, God desires that we seek peace through reconciliation. And so whether we were the one who was wronged or we were the one who wronged someone else, Jesus says, if you are, even if you're in the middle of offering your gift at the altar and you remember that there's something between you and a brother, go and resolve that. Don't leave these issues unresolved. Don't allow anger and abusive language to take over our lives. A second case study that Jesus gives here, and each one of these specifically targets, as we said, an interpretation that the Pharisees had created to escape the heart of the law. He speaks, secondly, of adultery and divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, we read how the Pharisees came to him and, and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That was one of the interpretations that a man could choose to divorce his wife at any time for any reason, including something as simple as burning his dinner. And so they come to Jesus asking this question, hoping that their interpretation gets validated. And Jesus said, this was not the intent of God. From the beginning, he made them male and female. So then the Pharisees ask a question. They said, well, then why did Moses say that you could write a letter or a bill of divorce and send the wife away? And Jesus said, it was because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, from the creation, this is not what God intended. So when we look at the idea of adultery and divorce, which Jesus treats in verse 27, down all the way through verse 33, what we realize is that at the heart of adultery and divorce is not just, well, I haven't gone out with someone who is not my spouse, or I have not abandoned a spouse, but the heart issue is lust and covetousness. In my heart, is my heart ruled by passions that are illicit, that are illegitimate. And the 10th commandment is very clear. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's slave, your neighbor's belongings. 
So adultery and divorce are only the fruit, but when we get down to the root, the heart issue is lust and covetousness, and Jesus says, this is what is at the heart of these issues. God desires faithfulness. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of God's faithful covenant love for his people. And therefore, if our hearts are consumed with lust, if our hearts are consumed with covetousness, we are not accurately reflecting the heart of God towards us. And therefore, Jesus said to the Pharisees, no, simply fulfilling the letter of the law is not enough. A third case study that Jesus takes in verse 33 34, I'm sorry, down to verse 37. It says, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. This was the idea at the time of taking an oath to make your words seem even more binding. But look at some of the loopholes that the Pharisees had created. The heart issue behind this was they had a a heart of lying and deceit. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus again criticized the Pharisees. He said, woe to you, you blind guides. For you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But someone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold of the temple or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but someone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. So you see what was happening. The Pharisees were creating this thing where they could say, well, I swear by the temple. And then when the time came to fulfill the oath, they would say, well, I didn't swear by the gold of the temple, so it didn't really mean anything. It's kind of like the little kid who says, oh yeah, I'll do it. And he has his fingers crossed behind his back, right? Or the kid who says, okay, I'll do that. And then when the time comes to fulfill his word, he said, well, I didn't say I promise. We can create loopholes. But Jesus, as he gets down to the heart of the issue, he says, is our heart dominated by lying and deceit? Or do we have a heart like God's where God desires integrity in our speech? The next case that Jesus treats starts in verse 38 when he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. And this, now Jesus treats the idea of revenge and resistance. Because the way that the Pharisees had interpreted the law was that it was... The, the law of an eye for an eye. If someone injures you, you can injure them up to the same extent. So if they, if they hit you and damage your eye, you can return that. If they hit you and knock out a tooth, you can take out one of their teeth. And so the culture became a culture of retribution. And being that the emphasis was on honor and shame, for someone to be publicly slapped in the face was tantamount to an act of of physical aggression that reduced the person to nothing. And therefore, it was very common for someone to defend their honor. And even today, in certain societies, we hear reports of honor killings 
When a family member is insulted or taken advantage of, other members of the family will come and will kill the offender in order to avenge the honor of their family. But again, Jesus points out this is not God's heart in the matter. The heart issue here is when we seek for revenge and we resist those who would do us evil. The heart issue is that we have a desire for self-preservation or self-advancement. Look at what Jesus says. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now we have to understand, as we read through this, it's obvious in some of these cases Jesus uses hyperbole. He uses exaggeration for effect. For example, when we went back, if we went back and looked at the section where Jesus talked about adultery and he talked about divorce, he said, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. This is hyperbolistic language to show how serious we should be in our treatment of sin and our commitment to God's heart. We should be willing to separate even from parts of our physical body if necessary. But here Jesus is saying also that we should be not desiring at all costs self-preservation and self-advancement, but the heart of God is that we do good in reliance on him. And Jesus himself would become the ultimate example of this. And the Bible says when he was mistreated, he did not mistreat in return. When he was mocked and cursed, he did not curse in return. Remember when in the garden, Peter drew the sword and was ready to go to war. And Jesus said, Peter, put that away. Don't you realize that I could call at an instant 12 legions of angels and they would be much more effective at settling this situation than you with your sword, Peter. But Jesus realized that God's heart was not for self-preservation, that he was to do good in relying on God. And therefore, Jesus ultimately made the ultimate sacrifice in giving his life in trusting to the plan, trusting himself to the plan of God. And so Jesus says here, if someone wants to slap you, rather than respond with a similar gesture, you turn the other cheek. If someone wants to take the tunic or the cloak, give, give freely. Do have a heart for doing good Trusting that God will be the one to care for you. As we continue, Jesus gives one more 
case study, if you will, from the law. And you can see in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, he comes back to this same idea of not resisting and not seeking revenge when he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he finishes that section by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The fifth case study, the last one, Jesus speaks of hatred and mistreatment of others, especially those who were outside of one's group, those who were labeled as enemies. He said, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The heart issue here is one of favoritism and partiality. Favoritism in the sense of, I will treat people well who treat me well. Those who I like, I will do good to. Those who I dislike, I will do evil to. It was very popular in that day. But God desires a love that is impartial. An impartial love for all people. We see an illustration of this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Pharisee who posed this question, and he said he wanted to justify himself by asking, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he finishes with a question by saying, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the Pharisee said, well, it was the one who had mercy on him. James also picks up this same idea in James chapter 2. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. We are not to give preferential treatment to someone who we think can do good for us in return. So the question we want to ask ourselves this morning is this. As we look at these laws, and as we said, we're doing just a quick overview. We could take time and and an entire sermon on each one of these sections, but we want to see the big picture of what Jesus is saying. What do our hearts reflect? Are we merely being religious? Are we looking for the loopholes? Are our hearts dominated by anger and abusive language? by lust and covetousness, by lying and deceit, by a desire for self-preservation, and by favoritism and partiality? Or do our hearts reflect God's heart, where we are seeking for reconciliation, for faithfulness, for integrity, for doing good in reliance on God and showing impartial love to all? If we were to take inventory of what is in our own hearts this morning, what are our hearts reflecting? And then Jesus closes with this statement. He says, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This statement closes all the loopholes. It gives us no place to escape. 
But we must understand that Jesus is not saying that this is the way that we will enter into God's kingdom. This is the way by which we can be saved is by perfectly obeying the law. But what we must understand is that the law of Christ, as Paul uses the term, is not a weakening of the law or not just a setting aside of the law, but it deepens it. It goes beyond mere externals to the issues of the heart. And as the one who perfectly fulfilled God's will and to whom the law and the prophets point, we realize that Jesus is the only way to obtain this kind of heart that is necessary for entry into the kingdom of God. A heart, we can never create in ourselves a heart that is like God. But it was what God promised Israel that he would do in the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So as we think about these values that God has, these kingdom values that are to be in our hearts, we must ask ourselves the question, what is our heart reflecting? Do we have a heart that is like God's? Do we have a heart that desires the things that God desire? Or are we satisfied with simply fulfilling the externals, appearing religious. God doesn't want a religious people. God wants a people with a heart like his. And as Jesus goes through these elements of the law, and he says, you've heard that it was said, but I am telling you, he is revealing to us God's heart. God desires reconciliation. God desires faithfulness. God desires integrity. He desires that we do good in full reliance on him, and he desires that we love all men as Christ has loved us. Is that your heart this morning? If not, as I take inventory of my own life, I see some empty shelves. Or maybe more accurately, I see some shelves that are filled with the wrong things. But the beauty of it is the grace of God is there for us. God's grace is there. We can run to him in confession, in repentance, and we can once again ask him to transform our hearts that they might be like God so that we might reflect him accurately to a watching world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're humbled once again as we come to your word because we see you for who you really are. And when we see your heart, Father, we realize how far our hearts are from being like yours. So God, we pray that your spirit will once again renew and transform our hearts. 
And God, we pray that if there is someone here who has never come to know you, who has never had the experience of having their heart made new through the Spirit of Christ, might today they come to know you. Might today they understand that our relationship with you is much more than just merely being religious. But you desire us to have a heart that reflects yours. So God, continue to do your work in our hearts. Transform us through your grace and through the gospel to make us like you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.